For the next four weeks, uh, we'll be in the book of Ruth. <clears throat> so we're in Ruth chapter 1 today. I'm trying to keep my own voice going here. If you don't know where the book of Ruth is, it's after the book of Judges and before 1 Samuel. Um, it's a little book, four chapters. Um, Ruth is this little story. It's very easy to read the book of Ruth. You could read the whole thing several times over in, in the next month. You could sit and read this whole thing in 30 minutes, tops. It's a wonderful little story. Um, in some sense, it's a, some people think of it as a love story. It, it is. It's a, a several layers of love and kinds of love. Um, and it's this ordinary tale of God's providence, of Him working something out for the sake of, of two women. And the book is really as much about Naomi, um, Ruth's mother-in-law, as it is about Ruth. And in a lot of ways, by the time we get to the end of the book, it seems like the book's attention turns to Ruth, and I mean to Naomi, and saying this is, this is really about what God is doing for her. But we'll look at these two women together, because they really do go together for the whole of this story. I'm going to read Ruth 1, <clears throat> 6 through 18. Then she arose, Naomi, with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go out, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people." And your God, my God, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word and for the lives of these two women, our sisters in faith. God, we pray that we would be attentive to them. We pray that our hearts would be soft, that you would speak to us and we would hear. Father, we pray that you would stir up a faithful response in us to all that you have done and will do. We thank you, Jesus. 
Amen. This book is uh, placed after the book of Judges and before the book of 1 Samuel to help you understand chronologically uh, where you are in the story. It doesn't actually fall here in the original Jewish ordering of things, but for us in our understanding of chronology, it helps us. Because this is the time of judges. This is the time where Israel has come to the promised land. They don't have a king yet. And so there's these regional governing bodies. And what's going on right now at this time is that there's a drought. And this drought has driven Naomi and her family away out of the land of Judah. So Naomi was married to a man named Elimelech. And they left where they were from. In Bethlehem, they left Judah. They had their two sons, uh, Malon and Chilion. They went to Moab. They went out of the promised land. So that alone should tell you how desperate things are um, for the Israelites to leave the promised land and go to what would become, and kind of already is, the home of their enemies. But they're, they're hungry people. And when they get to Moab, their two sons marry these two people, Orpah and Ruth, And then tragedy falls on them even harder. Elimelech dies. And then Naomi's two sons die. And so now what you have at the beginning of the passage that we just read is they have three widows together who are absolutely devastated. And Naomi is out of options. She has to go back to where she came from. And where Naomi is in in society is an extremely precarious place to be. Uh, She is an older widow with no sons to care for her. She is exposed and vulnerable in a real life and death kind of way. This is not like today where you would just say, well, that sucks. Now you got to get a job and you'll be fine. That's kind of how we treat death in our day. Well, everybody can get a job. You just got to get a smaller apartment and, you know, you'll work things out. It's sad, but you'll be fine. It's sad and it won't be fine. She could very well die. She, she's not somebody with marketable skills. She's not, she doesn't have a degree hanging on the wall. She doesn't have a high school diploma hanging on the wall. She doesn't have a lot of trades that she could generate individual business with. She's no, she has no inheritance to lay hold of. She has no place to go back to. She left her family for years to go try to find food. She is exposed. And these two women who are going with her are foreigners returning to Israel. These people, Orpah and Ruth, they are Moabites. And they're going back to the land of Israel where no inheritance awaits them. And in this moment of, of danger, Naomi says, you have a better shot if you just stay in Moab. Because you have family there. You're of relatively marriageable age. You can find some people there. And you, you may be okay. But I've got nothing for you. Don't come with me. But you can see, obviously, the, the love and the affection that's between all three of them. That, that Naomi is heartbroken and Ruth is heartbroken. Orpah is heartbroken. Ultimately, Orpah listens to, to the direct command, the, the suggestion of Naomi and, and leaves, but Ruth does not. 
Ruth stays with Naomi. And there's something here about the life of, of faith and faithfulness that Ruth's life has for us, that Naomi's life has for us. It'll be a reoccurring theme, this theme of faithfulness. And I think it's worth noting here, something that should happen within the context of people who, who follow God, and that family relationships are, are woven through and amidst God's people, even outside the bounds of biology and marriage. So Naomi has no real ties now to Ruth. Her only tie to this foreign woman was through her dead son. But there is still yet this strange tie woven to them. And this, I would suggest, is actually a mark of the family of God. That familyness, familyhood is, desi- is designed to expand, to sweep in and include people who biologically have no rights to be a part of the family. We, we are meant to be people who, who say everybody who comes here and names God as Father has a home, has shelter, has community. And so I think as we read this passage as people who are often paired off or in the, the formative stages of life, it is easy to, to forget that there are, it's normal and natural, especially in our day, for people to be in our midst, people to be part of our family who are single, who are widowed. And they do not have connection points to family and can be left out in dangerous positions if they are left to fend for themselves, but the family of God is meant to be a shelter for them. That there is no person who would come into church, come into a church, and come and be a part of the family who would not actually find themselves familyed. Does that make sense? And for me, that's as a father of four kids, as a husband to a wife, it's easy for me to forget that because I feel like I'm filled up with connections. But what the life of God calls me to is to recognize that God in no way and at no time has run out of space in His own household. And that it is a good thing for people to be connected. It is still a terrible thing for man to be alone. The thing that God said about Adam before he made Eve, it it still speaks true. And there are people in churches, in our church, who, who sort of sail along in islands of loneliness that God meant for them to have resolved in a new kind of family. That, that's why it should be a mark of our people that we are an adopting people. That we, that we adopt children. That we adopt brothers and sisters. That we adopt new parents. There is nobody in any stage of life who should find themselves so barren in the context of the church that they find that they live life alone. Because the family of God is that big and expansive. And, and while there is still the ache of not having a spouse or there's, of not having children or of not having grandparents, while that ache may still yet linger for our people, they should not experience that ache alone. 
I, um, I go to school up in this, to the seminary up near Pittsburgh, and um, <clears throat> one of the professors there is, a, um, his name is Wes Hill, and he kind of got a name for, for writing about his experience as a man who was born same-sex attracted. It says his natural affections, attractions are for other men. And he says, to follow Jesus, I believe I cannot act on that. But he's very open and saying, I, my heart longs for intimacy and connection and family. And I don't think that's bad, which is correct. It's not. So I knew about him. I've read a bunch of his stuff. I've never met him because he's too smart for me. I don't want to talk to him. But I had dinner with one of, uh, another guy who lives there and works for the school. And what's happened is, is that Wes has become part of a family who they're married, they have their own kids, but they've intentionally found a house with extra rooms so that he can come and live there and be a part of their family. Because Wes should have a family and should have people who he's intimately connected with. And the the expansive work of the family of God is big enough to, to put a roof over their heads together and make a new and unexpected kind of family woven together like that. And that is a a beautiful thing. And it requires figuring out each other how to make space for each other. It costs something. Not everybody has their own space. The question for me with stories like that with Ruth and Naomi's is, and am I, do I allow God to say, you have to finish that room in your basement. You have to find a bigger house. Or, even easier, lower bar, is there room at your table for tonight? And that is the question for us as the people of God. Is there room at your table for people who are otherwise lonely and unfamilied? Now there's also something in here in, in their story about the nature of following Jesus. Because the way that Ruth describes her commitment to Naomi is a kind of description of the life of faith and of conversion. Because Naomi is a Moabite woman. That is, that is what she was born into. That's her genetics. That's her biology. And everything that goes with it. And what she decides to do is to cling to Naomi. That's what the, the word used in our translation. That she clings to Naomi. and She says, I won't let go. Your people will become my people. Your God will become my God. What that is, is conversion. That is a, a transforming of things. Now she's not like there's not like a, a light that beams down on her and like changes her DNA or something like that. That's not what conversion is. It, it's not this um, sort of special like illumination from the inside out. What what Ruth is showing us is that oftentimes conversion is really born out of desperate trust. And Ruth, out of desperate trust, says, my life is now connected and bound toward yours. And I leave behind everything else that was mine naturally. And we, we kind of 
get lost in the life of faith and, and sometimes don't even think about it. And sometimes we, we kind of over-spiritualize it and we lose the context of, of relationship that's necessary in the life of faith. It's really defined in the life of faith. We, we see faith in the New Testament and we, we make it a theological term. But the root of the word faith is, is not some sort of special knowledge necessarily. It's ultimately grounded in relational trust. People try, if you grow up in church, they try to tell you what faith is. It's like a chair. You sit down, you don't doubt the chair. The problem is that sometimes you doubt the chair. Are you with me? When life gets hard, like Naomi is in the middle of a difficult to say the least, section of life, when she has lost everything, when she is on the verge of death, you can hear that kind of suffering in her life when she says, the hand of God is against me, which by the way isn't true. It's not, nothing in the text has suggested that, but that's certainly what it feels like. That kind of sounds like a moment where she's doubting the chair, if, if you get my drift. And so when people think and talk about the life of faith, they think, well, when I get to these moments of, of of unsureness when I get to these moments of doubt, am I sort of teetering out of the life of faith? And when you tie faith to intern, uh, when you tie it to certainty, when you tie it to internal um, feeling, then when those seasons come, you're unsure of where you are. But the picture, a better picture of faith, is what Ruth does. I, I don't know about all this stuff. I don't know how this works out but I'm not letting go of you. And my identity is now tied up in yours and whatever happens, if this sink, ship sinks, I'm going down with it. And actually, this is how we see things happen for the disciples. If you look in John 6, Jesus has given a long discourse that I made reference to last week actually, where he's tell, told them, everybody that's gathered there, that if you want to survive, you have to feast on my flesh. I'm the bread that comes down from heaven. I'm the manna that Israel fed on. You have to feed on me. And everybody is deeply disturbed by what he says. I don't know if you are here last week, but I mentioned that passage. He's, they're disturbed by what Jesus says. And at the end of this speech, he turns to his disciples. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. This is the larger crowd of disciples. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Things are hard. The crux of the, of the matter is upon us. Do you want to go away too? And Peter answered him. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Who else can we go to is the sentiment of it. I, I can't go find another place. There's this sense of desperate relational trust. Nobody's like you. I can't be anywhere else. The life of faith that God is calling you to is where a faith that sees Jesus for who He is you don't have all the answers. You may be in the midst of suffering. You're not sure how any of this quite works out, but you say, I'm not letting go. I just can't find this kind of life anywhere else. And when, when we read Ruth's story, 
it invites us into that kind of faithfulness. But what's important to read here is that that life of faithfulness is actually first born if you flip the story and look at it from a different angle. And understand that you actually are not born out of and into a life of faith because of your own refusal to let go. But in fact, Ruth is a better icon, not just to teach us about our own response of faith, but to instead teach us about the faithfulness of Jesus. Because Ruth latches on to Naomi and refuses to let go, and her pledge is that our lives will be joined together. Nothing will separate us. Not even death will separate me from you. And while Ruth's example bids us to come and follow and respond to Jesus in this kind of faithful response, the truth is that you are meant to hear Ruth's words and to understand that Jesus speaks these kinds of words to you. That it is His own purposeful grasping of you, His own faithful grabbing on and refusing to let go that makes this kind of faithful response even possible. The reason that Peter says to Jesus, where else can we go, is because Jesus has demonstrated to Peter the kind and quality of His own person. Jesus has called Peter first. Peter was called by Jesus first. Jesus found Peter first. And in this story of faithfulness, it is not your own faithfulness that is most at issue, but it is the faithfulness of God Himself. And in Ruth's story, as we'll see in in following chapters, and in all the story of Scripture, God presents Himself as the God who's not just standing there before you saying, believe me and trust in me because of who I am, but is instead pursuing you and demonstrating His faithful character. Jesus is Ruth, but better. You and I are the ones that think we have the idea, the solution, for the life, the moment of suffering. We think we know what we should do like Naomi did. You don't want to be with me. You don't want to to deal with me. You are better off without me. And Jesus comes to each and every one of us and says, I will not leave you. I will not let you go. But the difference between Ruth and Jesus is that Jesus has no need it's not born out of desperate sorrow. It's not, he's not clinging to you because He has no other idea or He's lost without you. It is out of the supreme, superfluous nature of His generosity that He says, I'm just not letting you go. I'm fine. But I want you to be fine. And I won't let you go into a life of barrenness and death. But instead, I will hold on to you. And not even death might separate us. It is, as Jesus said, that when God puts the sheep into His hands, He will not let a single one go. He does not lose a single one of the little ones who have been put into His hand. So you, are, you and I are, are beckoned into a life of faithfulness, into the faithful family of God. But our faith, our household is grounded on the solid rock of Jesus' own faithfulness to His church. If you are here today and you have not been faithful, if you have not been found faithful, if you have lived a life where you said, you know what, Uh, my gods will also be my gods and I'll try to do your gods too. 
I'd like one foot in Moab and one foot in Judah. God has a better kind of life available to you. You should leave aside those other gods. Because they don't have the words of life for you. And I don't know what your gods look like. Whether they are security or pleasure or plans or respect. I don't know what they are. But those gods do not speak words of life to you. They have no breath of their own. The only power they have is to destroy you. Leave aside and join yourself to this life into this unseen country and there find the life of God. But if you have, if you have said, look, I, I have, I've tried. I'm just not very good at it. I keep going back and forth here. God's faithfulness to you was always better than your faithfulness to Him. The words of life didn't first come out of your mouth. They came out of the mouth of Jesus first. And if you have found yourself to be so disturbingly fickle and unfaithful, Jesus has always known you. He's always seen you for who you really are. He did not find you at your best and assume that's what you are now and always. He has seen you at your worst and he has pledged himself to you. You do not need to be afraid. You do not need to be scared. You may feel like you do not deserve the inheritance of another country. But what God says to you is, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You are a son or a daughter who carries the Spirit of God inside of them. You are called this morning to relief first and foremost. And then faithful response. God is faithful to you first. In that you can take comfort. In that you find a kind of life that is worth selling everything for and following wherever He may lead. He will never leave you. Not even through the horrors and darkness of death. Because death itself He has seen. He has passed through. He is defeated. Not even death can separate you from Him. Beloved son or daughter of God. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, <clears throat> we thank You for Your pursuing love, for Your faithful love. We thank You for the example of Ruth. We thank You for the reminder of, of the kind of faithful response that You call us to. God, we confess that we we set that standard aside. We commit ourselves to, to being intellectually sure all the time or to feeling enough inside of us. Or we just ignore You. But God, this morning I pray that You would help us by Your Spirit to cast ourselves upon You. 
You are our inheritance. You provide for us rich places of life and security. Your household has room for us, room you made for us. Father, I pray that you will help us to see all the ways that we linger, that we hold back, that we hedge our bets, we try to play safe. (coughs) I pray, God, that you'll help us to respond to your faithfulness. Help us to see you for who you are, to see and know the truth that you are worth setting everything aside. Where else can we go to find the words of life, Lord Jesus? Where else but you? Lift yourself up, Lord Jesus. Amen.